Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Kush with Room Now. Tonight on our webinar, we're going to continue discussing rheumatoid arthritis. Our subject tonight, our panel is focused in on DMAR choices and changes. I'm joined by a number of experts in the field, but first I want to get, uh, recognize the sponsor of this month on RA and the hard decisions in RA campaign. That would be BMS. Thank you for your support. So let's begin with our panel introducing themselves. Alan, why don't you go first? Hi, I'm uh, Alan Matsumoto. I'm a rheumatologist in private practice uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're a 25 uh, provider, I guess, physician group uh, outside of Washington, uh, D.C. Excellent. Artie. Artie Kavanaugh, rheumatologist uh, in Mercy, California, San Diego. Uh, um, and that's the ocean behind me. He's really in Brooklyn, folks. <laughs> Madeline. Hi, I'm Maddie Feldman. I'm a rheumatologist in private practice in New Orleans, and I do lots of advocacy stuff on the side. Excellent. All right, folks. So what we're going to do is, you know, last week we discussed with Weinblatt, Kremer, Conway, and Wright, you know, methotrexate. And, you know, rheumatologists, um, amazingly, you know, are like flies to the light bulb on methotrexate. I think we're the same, meaning that we love it. We're all around it. It's like white on rice kind of thing. Oh, I'm already like an HR hell, aren't I? So uh, <laughs> check, check, moths to the light bulb. Flies go to, you know what, not to the light bulb. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I guess I'm like Norm Crosby. I mix up my, my, uh, slogans and whatnot um and look up norm crosby if you will uh, but but i but i think that you know we could talk forever about you know how we use dmards how i use them how you use them i'm going to encourage the audience to ask questions along the way use the q a box we'll answer your questions throughout the session um and we want to make this as interactive as possible between you um the audience and the panel so we're going to begin by going over a survey we did of um, rheumatologists on the website. Um, the survey uh, invite was first went out on uh, Sunday night and uh, everybody answered their survey questions on, um, let me put this up full screen, thank you. On Monday morning and with 24 hours, um, we uh, accrued 231 responses from rheumatologists. Uh, this was from around the world, 43 countries with all, about 51% or half the audience uh, that responded was from the United States. Turns out in looking at these six questions that we asked about DMAR choices and changes that there really wasn't a lot of difference between uh, international rheumatologists and US rheumatologists. So we'll see some of that. So I'm gonna begin with the first question, which was um, how do you use steroids? I mean, we are, you know, we had a lot of, I don't know if you've seen, but we have a really nice video on the website where we get the ULAR view on steroids and RA from Robert Landaway, the ACR view from um, uh, uh, Brian Anglin, and the Australian view from Peter Nash. And they really kind of each go over their views and they are different. But since we're all sort of enamored with steroids, it's not surprising that uh, half of you will use steroids um, uh, mainly in severe active arthritis. The number who use it First visit, all patients is about 20%. That's the orange. 
But really, severe active arthritis and RA flares accounts for three quarters of steroid use. And um, does this bother any of you on the panel? I mean, uh, does this reflect what you do? Do you think there's a, a fault in some of our thinking on this? Artie, what do you think? I want to know who the nun people are. What is it, 5% or something in that little blue slice? Yeah. Because uh, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's the right answer and that Jack's going to give them a room now cup or something. Because, <laughs> you know, that's the correct answer, but they're lying. Yeah. But uh, is everybody, uh, you think everybody's really spot on and saying, I use them, I use it a lot. Um, I use it in polyarthritis. I mean, I, your version of severe is not really my version of severe. Maddie, what do you think? I, you know, when patients come to me and, and it's, and I can see they're going to have a really bad course, everything hurts, they're depressed, you know, they're, they're really sad that they've got this. They think they're never going to feel better again. Yeah, I put them, I put them all in a little bit and tell them that we're going to be taking them off because, uh, you know, and maybe this is my sort of uh, uh, woo-woo Zen sort of approach to it, but when people feel better, they get better. And when they, when they, if they, particularly if they're severe, if they have this idea, I can feel better again. Um, I've found when I taper them off, they do just fine. Unless of course, you know, it, they need a new drug or they need to be increased, but um, I'm the feel better, get better, quicker person. I, I think we all do that. I mean, but the problem is between the ACR and ULAR is the ACR believes you're never gonna stop it. And ULAR says, you're gonna stop it, no problem. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think that's uh, that's a good point. So we would love to um, uh, dive deeper into this question. So uh, if you start steroids, how many people are have their patients still on steroids after six months or a year down, oh, down, down the road? Uh, and what I noticed in my younger partners um, versus the older partners is, is that um, I think uh, the message is getting through to the younger partners that uh, uh, there are less, uh, they tend to use steroids less. Uh, they to go to biologics earlier, and they don't even know the meaning of this term bridging therapy that we all grew up with uh, on this panel. Well, my concern about, and I think that you're, I've seen that in the fellows um, in the, uh, the training program that I think you're right. I think they tend to use less steroids. They also tend to use less non-steroidals. They also almost never use pain meds. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how in the world are they managing these patients uh, what special sauce do they have that, I, that I'm not, you know, slabbing on my patients um, to control them? Or, or are they not paying attention to the minor, minor complaints? They don't care. Remember, our good friend Alvin Wells always used to say, I got to get the patient feeling better that first visit or they're going to go next door. I, I never knew who was next door to Alvin Wells, but it must have been some <laughs> very, very good rheumatologist because he was he says that a hundred times. And, I you know, I get his point. But, you know, I think now I think it's it's sort of less of a the, the not using non not not using a little bit of prednisone. Why would they come back to you? Yeah. I mean, and, and when I say use prednisone, I'm. I, I was always taught a little bit goes a long way in rheumatoid arthritis, and I have found that. Um, you know, I'll put patients on five milligrams a day for a week and then have them cut it in half. And so they're on two and a half milligrams, and in three months they're off. And I have not found that that's been a big problem. I know prednisone, you know, the P stands for poison and lupus, and probably in rheumatoid too if you use enough of it. So, yeah, I, a little bit goes a long way. 
Yeah, and I think what we've heard here from our panel is that most of us in practice are really tuned into the patient and them being happy. You know, when you're a fellow, it's about the job, it's about the, you know, the, the clinic and whatever. And, you know, there is no next door alternative for many of those patients. So they may not um, be as, it, they're invested in a different way and maybe a, have different goals. I want to uh, make a comment out to Carter Thorne, who put in a comment that I don't know how to address Carter, so I don't understand differentiating whatever IS versus oral is. I'm not sure what that is, so if you could explain that, we'll answer it. Um, but let me go on to this, you know, about what influences your choice, because today we're talking about DMAR choices, what you're going to choose first, second, third, what you're going to ratchet back um, from and whatnot. And again, US and uh, international rooms were pretty much uh, in agreement in that um, um, the number one was experience, but you know, safety and comorbidities, almost like a, um, there's a, a, a deselection process as to, I can't use this because of that safety issue or that comorbidity issue. And that's just the reality of management. So, but that accounts for, you know, pretty close to 60% of the patients with um, about 20% favoring ACR guidelines. And then, and that's in the, mainly in the US population. And then if I look at just the non-US population, they favor the ULR guidelines more strongly. So there is a role for guidelines in some of us, but I'm surprised that, um, that you know, the guidelines don't take on more of a role in our daily lives. Alan, I actually asked you to lecture on this in the past. You know, do you think that this is appropriate? So, you know, I'm actually not surprised that guidelines are not uh, a larger in our lives. I, I really do think that uh, guidelines have, have limited value uh, or have limited impact in, in terms of uh, treatment choices and, and the decisions, uh, decisions we make. Uh, guidelines have a tendency that if you agree with the guidelines, uh, you feel vindicated in making your decision. And if you disagree, you find some some reason to uh, uh, to criticize uh, whoever uh, uh, whoever uh, uh, established the guidelines or the uh, the evidence that that they're based on. Um, but yes, I, I think uh, particularly choices for RA um, uh, as you go past TNF inhibitors, that safety and comorbidities play a huge role in in, in the choice. They do for me, um, and I think for for many of us. You know, the, the interesting thing about the guidelines is that since they're all based on the same evidence um, and the clinical trials, there's an incredibly level playing field. Um, and I'm gonna show you some, some guideline statements uh, towards the end of this. But at the same time, they do have differences between ACR and ULAR that, um, you know, when the ULAR came out with its recommendations on steroid use, um, most US rheumatologists said, oh, that, that's right up my alley as opposed to the the American ACR guidelines, which were basically say, use methotrexate, don't use steroids. And uh, um, so again, I think that you're right. When when they serve my my particular point of view, I'm a guidelines guy. Um, you know, Jack, in, also, in the Q&A, they have the, uh, it was inter, the question was intraarticular steroids. I think that's a great point. I think what we've been talking about is oral steroids and intraarticular steroids are a little bit different, although uh, our European colleagues use them as if they were get out of jail free. And they'll, they'll do 
15 injections and you're still getting steroid. I mean, you, you give 15 times five, that's still 75 milligrams of prednisone that you're put yet you're given, you know, you're fooling anybody. So, uh, but usually they're different if you're doing one or two joints. There, there is some bad research um, from the past saying that intra, you know, not using systemic, but only using intraarticular um, up to a certain number was associated with less side effects or something like that. But those are not well done studies. And, um, and I think that's the story you tell yourself to make you feel better about your use of steroids. But it is compelling, nonetheless. I mean, it's part of a lot of the treat to target success, and especially in certain tr clinical trial. They were pretty liberal about the use of, the, of those steroids. I'm, I think that happened in um, uh, uh, the Ron Van Vollenhoffen study, the, what's it called, Nordic, um, what was it called? Uh, the early RA study where they allowed uh, intraarticular and systemic steroids. Anyway. Well, you know, interesting, Jack, that a couple of the uh, health insurance companies' national policies are coming out and limiting now the number of intraarticular injections in general a year that they'll pay for. And, you know, they don't even comment whether it's four different joints or two different joints. You know, if you're going to inject the same knee six times, well, you know, it, and it's been it's really unclear. But I think the, uh -huh. the important part is that they're going to start limiting uh, the number of injections a year. Um, I think it was two or three. And what if you inject one MCP and then the next time you inject a different MCP, is that counted as two for the year now? So hmm. there's going to be some clamping down on reimbursements for intraarticular injections. So I've only seen it so far coming out in one particular policy, but that's, that's kind of interesting that they're taking that out of our hands. Do you think it's because they've been seeing the, the billing of intraarticular injections associated with ultrasound use. So where it goes from, you know, a $100 fee to a $900 fee, that's maybe what they're trying to avoid. I mean, they could always separate it out from, from, from ultrasound. I mean, because the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, the 25 modifier, if you inject on the same day as you do a visit, they're not going to pay for both. They right. want patients to have it done on a separate day. And I think that's to um, discourage basically it's to, to pay to pay less in general um but yeah so they're they're going to cut down on the number of injections that they're going to pay for in a year and there's a number of an alan i don't know if you've come across it in any of your payers or, or arty but you know this whole 25 modifier on the same day as an yeah. e&m it's 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 horrible for patient it's, care it is it, it is, is just Our patients just are hard enough to get to us now we're asking them to come yeah. twice as often it's exactly right. It's the 25 modifier as part of the RA high hurdles um, and as a special Olympics for that. Um, all right. So, uh, yes, we're now going to get into what choices people make, uh, looking specifically at people who were on methotrexate and a first TNF inhibitor. And that's the next question that I'm going to advance here. Here we go. So in an RA patient who's on methotrexate and TNF inhibitor, what drug will you add next an active RA and look really kind of all over the map here. You know, um, the leading number is a JAK inhibitor, 31%. Next is a second TNF inhibitor, 26%. Wasn't too long ago that the majority of rheumatologists were going with a second TNF inhibitor. So obviously JAKs have made a role, but also the better knowledge about the other MOAs, there's a little bit more in second and third line use, sort of a, a, a level playing field, which is what 
kind of like the guidelines say. And then next uh, on the list looks like it's the IL-6 inhibitor followed by abatacept, and then um, going back to CSD MARDs. Um, and again, this is sort of what I would call second line biologic use. Does, it, does any of this surprise um, our panel? Well, it's, it's a tough one, Jack, because it's a, a single answer to an essay question. <laughs> and I mean, I just saw somebody in the clinic this morning, been on one TNF inhibitor, fantastic for a couple of years, and now says it's not lasting quite as long. What do you do? Um, and he had tolerated it perfectly well. So I gave him the choice and he said he wanted to try a different second, uh, another TNF inhibitor. Um, because he had done so well in the first one and now wasn't doing as well. I, I have no idea what's going to happen with it, but I think it's all the clinical setting too. So it's a little bit too complicated to ask as a um, single choice. Yeah, the, and that's a tremendous fault of this kind of question. But at the same time, the benefit of this kind of question is taking all those if, ands, or buts off the table, what are you going to do? And does any of this pan out? Of course, we never know because uh, survey questions are your opportunity to look good on paper. Like, I think that this is what the, uh, you know, this is what the, the research says. And if Alan Matsumoto was lecturing on this, I'm sure he would be telling me to use, you know, abatacept before rituximab or something like that. In fact, he probably wouldn't. But, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, I still think this is an interesting exercise because it takes away, yeah, whether a patient wants a PO drug, they like injections, they like the schedule of every other week. They, you know, what their next door neighbor is taking, someone in the waiting room was telling them about this, this new drug with an X on it or something, uh, you know, and all those things play some kind of role in the decision-making that goes on. I, I, yeah, think, I think a lot of it, go ahead, Alan. I was just saying, I, I, what's surprising to me is, is that, is, is the, the dominance of jack inhibitors considering all the dirt that's been thrown on jack inhibitors over the last several months uh, with oral surveillance and the, the the uh, thrombosis issue, it's really, it's pretty impressive that they, they're still, uh, they still lead the pack. You know, and a lot of it has to do, go back to that experience and judgment kind of question, because sometimes you can tell the patient's just not taking it, and so you're going to switch them to an infusion, or they take the, you know, a, a self-injectable when they shouldn't, or they don't take it when they could have, and so that might influence whether you're going to go to a second TNF, um, or not, that, you know, there's, there is no cookbook way to handle it, any individual patient. And I know that sounds kind of trite, um, but it's true. Every patient has a, has a different personality, has a different, um, of course, the comorbidities, and I think that's going to influence. But I, too, am surprised it's over, well, 31%, say, Jack. Yeah. So let me complicate this a little more by saying, Let's say that whatever your second line choice was after a TNF inhibitor doesn't work, and now you're going third line, what are you going to choose? And again, Jack's still playing a big role. Um, and then it's sort of an equal split, I think, between uh, abatacept and IL-6 inhibitor, but now rituximab appearing as an option in 10%. So, I, so this still suffers from the same bias and inaccuracies, but it does see does say something about Jack's and Alan's point that in spite of the adversity um, in the news and in the labeling, um, and I'll tell you, the, by the way, that the use of Jack inhibitors in the rest of the world compared to the USA, not much difference. Uh, and you know, they, they too have some you know, guideline, uh, uh, some regulatory 
constraints put upon them, maybe not quite the same or as bad as, a, as the FDA did, but nonetheless, uh, the behavior is still the same. So the other, the other thing I want to mention is, is that it's, it's, it's always been fascinating to me. Um, and I guess this reflects the, I would argue, the conservative nature of, of rheumatologists that, that we really love our TNF inhibitors, right? So, you know, these other drugs, ABBA and, uh, um, and uh, the IL-6 inhibitors have first-line indications. Uh, right. And yet we have never, ever moved from TNF inhibitors, even given choices, uh, we've never moved away from TNF inhibitors, and we love these TNF inhibitors so much so that we're trying a second TNF inhibitor over over these other these other products. It's really it's really impressive because if you look at the data, their first line data is is pretty good. Right? Yeah, very good. Yeah, I think I'll I'll use, that you don't want to give methotrexate to. I think an IL six, it's a, a good choice. Yeah, Alan, would you find in your youngins because anybody with enough gray hair, um, the TNFs <laughs> will always have a magical place. Um, right. They delivered us from the land of gold and penicillamine. Um, so, of course, they're going to have a warm, fuzzy spot in our hearts. But for the youngins who don't have that, in, in training, it's hard because we don't allow them to have their own opinions as much. But when they get out, are you finding that there's not the, uh, what do you mean the TNFs brought us from the desert? You know, I, I think just because of the just because of the timing of the the approval of these drugs that and, and the way these drugs were marketed, um, that they really never recovered from being second place uh, in mm. the uh, uh, in the first line or even uh, arguably the second line armamentarium. And it's uh, it's it's a little puzzling to me, actually. Uh, and uh, you wonder about the effect of marketing on uh, all of our choices that have just basically kind of reinforced this warm and fuzzy, if you want to call it a TNF love affair that we, that, that we all have. And, and I know we're not bringing up payers in this particular one, but it's only been the last maybe four years where you didn't have to fail to TNF sometimes before you right. could get to right. another mechanism of action. So it, you know, it became ingrained in, even if you were young, that you had to fail two TNFs before you could get to a different MOA. And I think that has a, that, that has a certain um, component in terms of, of, you know, that, that rut that we've been in. We just keep going along that same path of least resistance. And if you recall the, the, the recent, ACR guidelines, correct me if I'm wrong, Artie, that they, they do say that they encourage a different mechanism of action after the first failure. Isn't, isn't that right? I think that's right. Yeah. So I want to ask the audience, uh, our, our panel, do any of you consider these folks who are not responding to your best therapies, whether it's a first line, second line, or third line biologic, do you consider um, non-adherence as a factor? And does, a, does that color what your next choice might be. So let's say you use one or two injectables. Will you go to an oral agent with the hope that, uh, or, or conversely, an agent that you supervise, like we're going to infuse it in our infusion center, as opposed to let you, you know, freewheel it at home. Um, does anybody do that? 
Well, compliance is the most important thing uh, of all. I mean, there's no drug less effective than the one that you're not taking. And uh, I don't know that mechanism or frequency matters or cost. I think it's the individual. Um, and, you know, that's why the I ask people several times, you know, tell me again, when do you, you know, what day you take your, your shot? Uh, and like, yeah, doc, well, you know, I didn't really take it last month. And uh, the, my cousin Vinny approached to cross-examination. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It actually, it does, it could work. You know, there's a question from Dr. C. Uh, Harriman um, about what about the use of uh, either PRISM testing or I'll throw in that matter of Vectra uh, assays in making some of these choices. I'll I'll start by saying I've never ordered them. I never will. Um, what <laughs> uh, tell me how you use it. Maddie, how about you? Um, well, you know, it's gotten the Medicare um, sort of imprimatur now. So it in those states where they've passed <clears throat> mandatory payment for for uh, paying for biomarkers, they've now reached one of the hurdles so that it is. Um, I'm impressed with the RA PRISM. I get more and more impressed with it. Um, I, there's many reasons why I haven't ordered it more than, than a very few. And I think part of it has to do with workflow and part of it has to do with um, being unsure if the, the, it's going to be um, paid for. It's always nice to have more of a, a response test as opposed to a non-response test, but non-response test is, I don't know, Alan, what do you, what do you, what do you guys think of it? Yeah, so I, I agree. This, this is really a, a very novel, novel uh, a biomarker. And, you know, again, this, this harkens back to this love affair of the, uh, the TNF inhibitor, right? So it's not as if a, 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 the PRISM test tells you that you'll get no response to a TNF inhibitor. There will be a percentage that that will respond to a TNF inhibitor. It's just that the difference between the test showing you that it's going it, it will respond and, and, and the non so-called non-responders um, is, is is obviously much greater if you have if the test tells you that you are going to respond uh, um, uh, or not respond to a TNF inhibitor. So. Um, I think we're still all afraid a little bit that we would throw away a good class of drugs um, based upon based upon a test, that there'd be a, a certain percentage of folks or a large percentage of folks that will still respond, uh, even though the test tells us that uh, they won't respond. I mean, I can see if, if they haven't responded and you were thinking of maybe using a second TNF, maybe then might be a time to use it and it kind of convinces you to move over to a different MOA. It has been used to step over, um, you know, tiering and, and step therapy and, you know, with payers. So many of them are paying attention to it. Artie, what do you think? Well, the difficulty with biomarkers has always been the strength of the association and the percent of the population that it applies to. And here it's kind of a negative test, but it still doesn't to me, it's not strong, so strong to say you you really shouldn't prescribe a TNF inhibitor. It's more like rheumatoid factor for rituximab use. There's reproducible data that uh, overall the levels of response are less among people who are rheumatoid factor negative. But for an individual person in front of you, the effect size of it doesn't really sway me enough um, to 
to say I shouldn't try it. Plus, I'm still forced um, to use the TNF inhibitors first. And with the data as I see them now, it's hard to it's it'd be hard for me to push back against that. Um, you know, you try a TF for 12 weeks. If there's absolutely no response, you're done. And you know, you're done and you go into a different mechanism of action for sure. Whereas these tests, you, you send it out, you get it back. Who pays for it? The patient's really mad at you because they got a bill. You, your staff takes time doing that. And then you still have to treat, you still don't know if they're going to respond or not. So it's if biomarkers are very, very high bar. And I don't know that this meets it. Right. And then there's the CCP and, you know, the Abatisep. So that's another thing that you can use. Yeah. And the, the, the efficiency, though, of CCP and rheumatoid factor is that they're cheap. And if they have even, you know, some suggestion of benefit, uh, I, I pay attention more to that than, you know, a test like MBDA or PRISM, which is largely developed on, on a known data set where the known outcomes are it wasn't a prospective study. It wasn't the right design to build a biomarker. They all, it's all, uh, as Artie has said, and others have said, it's predicting the past, they, you know, by looking at cohorts. And um, so that's why I, I, I don't use it. Alan, you're going to say something. Yeah, I think the problem with, with the way PRISM is, is right now, and I think they would argue that the data may change as they, as they move forward, but it tells you that it, you won't respond to a TNF inhibitor but it doesn't tell you that you're going to respond to the next agent that you choose, right? So, and and that's and that's a big part of the equation is is that if you say you're not going to respond to something, then are you going to respond to the next drug that comes come, comes on? Right. And what's the percentage of that? I want to remind the audience to please put your uh, questions in the Q and A box, uh, and we'd be happy to get to them. Um, we're lucky to have Maddie Feldman on this call because she's done a lot of great work. In informing us about our next choices and dealing with insurance companies, you know, Maddie, the biggest complaint is by rheumatologists that their decisions taken out of my hands. That whether it's a going to be a biosimilar or the next drug that you know managed care is driving the bus on this, taking away my autonomy and control over the situation. Um, first off, what's your advice to the rheumatologists dealing with that? Well, you know it. That, that's absolutely the, the case, and which is why we spend so much time trying to get, you know, um, utilization management reforms passed in legislation. And I think one of the things that really has worked, if, if people are aware of it, and you, and you know for a fact that patients taking this drug, it's not going to work, or they've taken it before, is utilizing, you know, the, the legislation that's been passed in your state. The unfortunate part is most people don't know about it because it's real. And, and the ramifications of exclusions of certain drugs, I mean, we've all found in, in, a, in a number of policies that have come out this year, an entire class of drug gets excluded from even being able to use. So, you know, and that's where our guidelines actually kind of let us down. If you look at the ACR guidelines, they say you can use this or this or this or this or that. And so basically what, what payers say to us is that, well, even your guidelines say we can pick anything we want. So we pick these <laughs> drugs, you know, <laughs> taking away that whole experience and judgment from from the equation um, th and there's been some fairly egregious um, step therapies and choices and you know what is the lowest net cost drug um, when you have a ten thousand dollar a month drug being chosen over a three hundred dollar generic 
Why is that? Our patients bear the, the brunt of that cost. So I think all of that comes into play. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the first question we have to ask a patient when we're trying to make a decision is, you know, what's your insurance? And that's, that's not good. You know, or it takes you 18 months to get the patient stable. They've tried different things and now they're on their, their second or their third. And then all of a sudden their husband or they switch jobs and they can't use that drug anymore. I mean, that's real life problems that happen with our patients. Yeah. Um, before we move on, Artie uh, or Alan, you have a question for Maddie about the Spanish care question? Okay. Let's go on to, maybe it comes up uh, also in, under the topic of our next question, which is biosimilars. These are the answers from, um, oh, what happened here? Um, no, this is not biosimilar. So I'm sorry, this is the decreasing therapy uh, and weaning therapy. And the answers were the same for US and worldwide. The first question was, who do you permit patients to decrease their DMARD? That could be a conventional DMARD or um, a, a biologic or targeted synthetic. And the answers, as you can see, um, is that rheumatologists worldwide are pretty permissive in allowing patients to wean. So uh, 54% say yes if they're in remission, 31% say yes if they're well controlled. You know, that's 85% saying it's okay to wean. And that, you know, there's only, you know, very few say no, which is my answer. Um, and I don't allow them to wean. I mean, I know they're going to. But um, but I don't allow them because I spent my whole career trying to study a disease I can't control and to believe I have it under control and to make the patient believe that and say, yeah, it's okay to stop two out of the three drugs that you're on. And I, that's a roll of the dice that I don't want to take. So um, anyway, what do you guys think of this sort of? I, I wonder who that 15% is besides you, Jack, uh, um, <laughs> because if you tell the patient, I do not permit you to taper your drug, what does the patient hear? The patient hears, don't tell Dr. Kush that I tapered my drug. <laughs> they like do kids. it. They do, exactly. They do it all the time. By the time they ask you if it's okay, they've been doing it for three months. Um, so I don't think we just make suggestions to patients. We don't, we, we don't, we don't tell them what to do. We, we kind of suggest what we think it would be best for them to do. So, um, and the reasons for, I mean, I, I, I'm still surprised that the reasons for people tapering are all over the board. Um, sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, if, if the dose is 10, well, five must be safer. How, why would five not be safer than 10? It's less. Um, and you're always talking about side effects. And if it's a lower drug, it's side. And, and who takes drugs? Sick people take drugs. If I'm yeah. doing great, why do I have to keep taking this drug? I don't want to be a sick people. So, Artie, you say, you say we just make suggestions. Is this, are, are, as rheumatologists, are we bad parents? Um, <laughs> I hope that they follow my advice. Like, you know, don't go to that bar. Stay away from that 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 boy or girl. Um, Ra raising raising children is the best way to learn how little control you have in life. <laughs> And maybe it is a, a a lesson for how to be effective as a as a who, who teaches patients a better path um, in in their quest to control their disease. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's extremely popular for patients to want to want to taper. And if you and if you sit back and, and you 
you, you think about it from a patient's perspective is, is that you just gave this person 20 milligrams of methotrexate. They still had very active disease. You told them they couldn't drink alcohol. Uh, and suddenly you give them a TNF inhibitor and they feel great, right? What's the natural knee-jerk response is, well, hell, I don't need this methotrexate crap. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I, I did great on TNF inhibitor. And plus, if I stop it, I can drink as much as I want. What a, what a, what a great, uh, what a, what that's, that would just seem to me common sense on the part of a patient. And I, and I applaud you if you could, if you could uh, convince a patient otherwise. <laughs> you just described the last patient I saw today. So, um, which means this is not an uncommon scenario. No. There, there is, and sort of hearkening back to what we had just talked about, there, there is a, uh, and I'll, I'll name names, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina had put forth sort of an AI-directed shared savings value-based care program where they would pay the rheumatologist to optimize methotrexate. And I, I think we all optimize it adequately. You know, I put everybody on sub-Q and, you know, maximize. And if you can tell if they're going to respond or they're not going to respond. But they would pay, on average, rheumatologists around $1,500 a month for every month they would delay starting a biologic. And it's sort of the same thing for tapering and medication holidays. You know, we came out very strong against this, and they, they are um, sort of taking away the tapering and medication holiday because that really is not in the guidelines. And it's one thing whether we want to decide to follow the guidelines or not based on our clinical judgment, but to, but to be paid not to follow the guidelines, that those optics are bad. And if, and, if, and if a bad outcome comes and the patient's relative who's an attorney finds out that the doctor was paid to stop a biologic or to delay a biologic, yeah. um, that's not a very good look at all. So you know, everybody's looking at a way to save money for the system. Um, but I think it's more important to, you know, not have a patient on a drug that they don't need. Um, I don't know if there's any studies out there, and maybe you guys know that these so-called medication holiday that this particular insurance company was suggesting um, doesn't always end up well. And in fact, a lot of patients, when they go back, they don't recover, um, you know, the control of their disease activity. Well, there certainly are. I mean, those back to the, the, the which you could consider some of these withdrawal trials. I'm going to show show you a few um, do prove the fact that people get worse. Um, but the good news is that many of them do recover. Uh, and is the question is if that period under which you're in a flare state, so to speak, is that does that accrue accrue some damage um, that you know that is not easily recovered or you know, to the, for instance, the joint and the cartilage and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and, and it goes to this next question. Um, when you do wean either a conventional or biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD, what happens to them? The same people who are sort of okay and permissive say, well, you know, most do well and some flare, but very few flare, like 15%. And then there's five percent say I have no, I have no idea, meaning that they're maybe they're doing telemedicine. I don't know what that what I don't know means, but um, <laughs> always perplexed by that. So that again, this is part of the permissive thing that 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 is going on. Um, 
I, th I think these data, um, they don't fit with the actual study data that I think you're going to show, where even people who stay on their treatment, about 15% of them flare. People in continuous deep remission stay on treatment, don't taper. 15% of them flare. The disease waxes and wanes. If you stop it completely, that number goes way up, I would say, like to 40% or more. And then if you go on a half a dose, it's it's generally in between. Sometimes you get by perfectly fine with half a dose. Um, but in general, it's it's in between those, those two. So, um, so you're talking about this Arctic Rewind study where they kept them on the same dose or half the dose and those who went on half dose had 25% flares. Those who had stable dose had a 6% flare. That's a little bit different than this other study that you, uh, Artie and I know, oh, where I left it out, the retro. Um, retro, where you uh, either have no change in arm one, that's the um, orange arm. Uh, arm two is a 50% reduction. Um, and arm three is the blue bar, whereas uh, a reduction followed by discontinuation looking at flare rates. So as already says that, yeah, there's a 50%, even if they're still on drug, that they still get worse. Um, although magnified by attempts to either reduce dose or um, withdraw drug. Um, does this kind of data um, change your prescribing, Alan? You know the problem with the problem with all these studies is that they don't really model um, kind of real life patient in front of you, and uh, it would be very interesting to put uh, uh, fifty of us in a room uh, and talk about what our own experience would argue are prognostic factors for for for, for, for tapering for successful for successful tapering, whether or not it matters whether or not someone is CCP or rheumatoid factor positive whether or not their sed rate and CRP need to be absolutely low, uh, the duration of remission. So uh, the longer the, the, that they're in remission, uh, arguably you might have a better, you might have a better outcome. Uh, whether or not people use ultrasound or, or MRI scanning uh, to detect so-called subclinical synovitis before they taper. Uh, I mean, all of those factors I think need to be Need to be considered when 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 people taper, and, and none of these studies really mirror that kind of thought process when when they when they taper. A lot of these studies, you know, you hit you hit remission for six months and then you can taper. Well, obviously there are lots of patients who who, who uh, may not be good candidates to taper. Yeah, this uh, retro was twelve months, and I think the same with Arctic Rewind was also um, twelve months. Well, but you're right. There's a lot of other variables that are not taken into account here that ought, do um, dictate the choices that you make. And um, and I think that this data really are viewed by some as saying, "Gee, don't do it," and viewed by others as saying, <laughs> right. "Right, okay to me." It's fine to do. Right. I mean, I think one of these was used by that by that particular um, um, payer, and they were in um, connection with. Uh, a machine learning technology as well, and they were going to use the data, I think, uh, to put an initially voluntary program into a mandatory program. The problem is, is if you incentivize someone, a rheumatologist, even if we'd like to think that we wouldn't change our, our mind being paid $1,600 a month, I think it's going to be bad data going in. And exactly what um, Alan was saying, there, you know, we'd like to 
it'd be great to do population health. It's really nice. It makes things easy. You get you know the biggest bang for your buck. But then you forget about those individual patients that don't fit into it. And I think in 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 our field in particular, we have a lot of people that don't fit into the population kind of thing and the approach. And so that's why it's really tricky, particularly if you're going to try to introduce an AI algorithm with data that goes in without all of those nuances built in. And I think that's going to be that's going to be difficult. So uh, again, I, I want to go on this issue of, of incentivizing rheumatologists to maximize methotrexate. This audience last week heard from Michael Weinblatt about you know, that Jim O'Dell study that showed that people that went on to biologics um, did so, 30% of them went on without maximizing or escalating methotrexate. Um, so Artie, do you think that this incentivized thing helps correct what is probably wrong behavior? Um, is that the, the, the greater good here or is it still evil? No, it's, I think it's still unethical because the uh, you're incentivizing someone to do something that may not be optimal, as Maddie said, for an individual person based on population statistics for it. I think, you know, certainly there's nothing wrong with considering the, um, you know, say you should consider optimizing the methotrexate, you know, make that a checkbox. Have you considered, my, uh, because I mean, methotrexate, intolerability is not digital you know it's a continuum isn't it and if you're at 12.5 and you're having to beg the patient to stay on treatment you're not going to get them to 20 or 25 mm -hmm. no way it's just not happening so i mean you know from your experience that that whatever it is they're not going to take it and all you're going to do is delay their the time during which they're uncontrolled because the you're you're following something arbitrary to say that you didn't maximize um, their methotrexate. Well, they also offered um, a triple therapy. They said, if you didn't want to optimize oh. um, methotrexate, <laughs> and that's, you know, I, I don't know how many people out there, I mean, I've had Medicare patients come in that maybe were already on leflunamide and Plaquenil, and we couldn't get them a biologic, so maybe throw in a little uh, sulfazalazine or even a little bit of methotrexate. Um, yeah. But, you know, from the get go, of we're going to we're going to start with triple therapy. That's that's a hard sell. Yeah. You know, uh, I want to um, uh, point out John Goldman in Atlanta made a nice comment about, you know, patients can certainly wean and then eventually tell me what he's really, you know, I'm going to paraphrase and say that it's really about the relationship. It's about the communication. So you recognize that they may want to change, but that, you know, if you're not beating them up like Dr. Cush does and scaring the, the pants <laughs> off them, um, then and you have a good relationship, then you can you can roll with the punches and adjust on the fly and you know get them into this state of of, of being controlled or grace, whatever it is that they're that they're seeking. So uh, I like that. Um, I want to just go over um, the last comment was a question was uh, who currently chooses a biosimilar. Um, when it's used in RA, and you can see that there's a difference between the U.S. on the right and the rest of the world. Um, payers make the decision two-thirds of the time in the U.S., um, and um, in, in the rest of the world, it's half the time uh, does the payer um, or the municipality, and then 40% of the time, it's the rheumatologist making the choice. We have a minority opinion in this, um, and then it's split between the pharmacist maybe and other people. You know, we're now into a new era of biosimilars here with nine 
new adalimumab biosimilars joining the four infliximab biosimilars. We now have 10 versions of, of Humira, if you will. Um, and this is going to be an issue. Maddie, do you want to explain, since you're here, the, the, of those nine new biosimilars in adalimumab, I think like six of them have this up-down pricing. Yes. It's offered yeah. at a 5% discount or a 70% discount. Right. I think, yeah, the, the, the one that I think is leading is 5 and 55%. You know, I think it, we, we have to understand, well, why did we come up with biosimilars to begin with? It wasn't to create the lowest net cost for the middleman. It was to reduce the price of the drug, the actual price of the drug. And um, yes, when the first, I mean, think about it, when the biosimilar, the first um, um, Lantus biosimilar came out, um, they were made by the same company and they, they, they made two versions. They made one that cost pretty much the same as the reference product and then one that was like 80% off. And believe it or not, they were even deemed interchangeable. Both of them were. The only one that made it onto the formulary was the high priced one. So, you know, we, we know it's, it's pretty obvious now that the higher price makes more money for he who constructs the, the formulary because not now, you know, most of the rebates, a lot of them are being um, reclassified as fees because they don't have to be passed back to the plan sponsor, whether it's an employer or another health plan. So it totally defeats the purpose of why we have biosimilars. You know, biosimilars come to market supposedly with a low price and no market share. And if you have a low price and no market share, you're not going to get onto a commercial formulary. And we have seen with the lowest priced adalimumab biosimilar, which coming through cost plus drugs is going to be about $600. Even at $600, our patients can't afford that. So someone has to create an insurance for even a biosimilar that's 85% off list price. And if you're not going to get it onto a formulary, I think where those will actually be helpful is if you have the employer sponsored plans. You know, these large companies that actually pay for the health care, you know, there's one large company that's being told by their consultant not to switch to a biosimilar because rheumatologists won't um, won't like it. This is a company that spends $50 million a year on Humira, and their consultant is telling them don't switch to a $600 a month drug. And that's because they're sort of, I hate to, I hate to, I, maybe I'm a bit biased, but they're in cahoots with the, with the, with the pharmacy benefit manager that's been contracted. So right. I think we, in those cases, you know, where the employer actually has the choice of which ones to cover, I would encourage them to cover the $600 one. And because that's a lot cheaper than the seven or $8,000 one, even if you get a 50% kickback. And that's, that's the problem. Our payers are all publicly traded for the most part, the big three who make up the formularies. And because they're publicly traded, their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders not to our patients, which is why you have a minus 5% biosimilar being chosen over a minus 80% biosimilar. Right. I want to be clear that the audience, a 5% discount is so the PBMs and insurance companies and manufacturers can still be in cahoots with the rebate system that's existed in the past. The rebates are not going to be as steep and as great uh, and as profitable, but they're going to be still very profitable. Going with that 70% discount gets you to the $580 a month to Mark Cuban or whoever, uh, but that's still $7,000 a, a, a year, which is basically the donut hole for your Medicare patients. And so, 
But luckily, in 2025, there will be a cap from our Medicare patients for Part D. It'll be $2,000 a year, and it will be smoothed out over the years, so they'll be able to pay about $175 a month towards that, but um, which, if, if that really is the case, we may see a little bit of a turnaround in the Part D um, sponsors because it will behoove them then to buy cheaper drugs because they're not going to be able to get as 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 big of a, a rebate. So we may actually see lower price drugs being chosen. But as far as just the regular commercial plans that are fully funded, um, it's clear. Although you may find a couple of inexpensive or at least less expensive um, biosimilars on if they can bundle it with another drug that they have that the PBM is making a lot more money on. So you see that oftentimes with, you know, drugs in a completely different disease state that's making a lot of money for that particular PBM, they'll let a slightly lower price drug. It's a, it's a, it has nothing to do with patient care. And, you know, fortunately, I think rheumatologists um, are, are wise enough and we take our patients individually and we fight for them, but, you know, that takes a lot of time. You know, when you have a prior auth that's what, 35 pages long, you know, that's what we're, that's the kind of thing we're up against. You know you're in trouble. All right, so yes. I wanna just review with the audience this, where do we, where do the guidelines currently stand? And the ACR guidelines for RE treatment in 2015 said that if you were on the right established RA in remission, continue methotrexate, they, you can wean uh, those other therapies, but, they were emphatically saying, do not discontinue all drugs. Chance of drug-free remission is incredibly low. The 21 guidelines were a little bit more, a little bit more dancing. They say that the addition of a biologic or target synthetic is recommended over triple therapy in patients who cannot tolerate methotrexate. Continuation of all DMARDs at the current dose is conditionally recommended over a dose reduction of a DMARD. And, and then they say, it's better to, if you're going to do anything, reduce uh, the dose uh, as opposed to discontinue the drug. Um, they say that um, be a target and maintain therapeutic dose of at least one DMARD if you're going to withdraw therapy. And lastly, gradual discontinuation of methotrexate is recommended over the gradual discontinuation of a biologic or a JAK inhibitor. And that really is based, that latter part, on the results of the SEAM study, the, the RA SEAM study that Jeff Curtis um, published. I'll, I'll just go and show the, the ULAR guidelines where they're basically, a lot, uh, uh, when you get to this certain stage, uh, and if someone has improved and doing well in LDA or in sustained remission, um, they say it's okay to do dose reduction or interval increase is what they recommend. Uh, and basically, after glucocorticoids have been discontinued, a patient is and a patient's in sustained remission, dose reduction of a DMARD, either the biologic or target synthetic and or conventional um, DMARDs may be considered. In fact, they do recommend um, stopping the more expensive, they used to recommend stopping the more expensive biologic as opposed to the cheaper biologic, whereas the ACR is kind of the opposite. But um, do you think that these really inform us in, what, in some of the discussions we've had tonight? No, I think, although, like Maddie said, it's interesting because I know in, in places like in uh, Denmark, they use this to say you sh you should 
um, taper. Um, and there's the, there the the money incentive is to the state. Uh, but if you're in remission, you need to taper. And I've heard that from some colleagues in Europe. So you get in the, the situation kind of the opposite of how it was uh, when biologics were new, when they rheumatologists would put their finger on the scale to make sure the DAS was greater than 5.1 to be able to get on the TNF inhibitor. Now, I think they're saying you're not in remission, are you? Because if they're in remission, you have to stop or you have to taper. And if the patient doesn't want to, I certainly wouldn't push them to do it. All right, and we spent all these years, you know, driving for remission, wanting remission, you know, just the ACR 2050 aren't enough. We really need remission. And as soon as we've got a decent number, I still don't think enough patients in remission. Now the push is let's, let's get rid of those drugs that took us so long to get them into remission. Speaking of which, tomorrow, Room Now, we publish an, an article um, on what the experts do in multi-drug failures, meaning that, and you can define that however you want, not classically refractory RA or difficult to treat RA, but I sent an email request out to many of the leaders in the RA world and an interesting um, overview piece from many people on how they manage those who are multi-drug failures. For look, so look at that um, in tomorrow's room now. Uh, uh, as we end, I wanna thank our panel for a, a great discussion and great insight. This has been really helpful. Next week on Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we're at the beginning of a new campaign, this time on polymyalgia rheumatica. Uh, the title of the campaign is Make Room for PMR. Um, we're going to have a panel discussion next week on the diagnosis and monitoring of PMR. I hope you'll be able to join us for that. Artie, Maddie, Alan, thanks so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah.